Hello and welcome to The Conversation with me, Amanda Decadney. This series of The Conversation is brought to you by VS Voices, another fantastic podcast I host, which highlights trailblazing women from around the world to celebrate the multifaceted nature of the female experience. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. On this week's episode, I'm speaking to Africa Brooke about all things cancel culture, as well as speaking your mind and the incredible benefits of living with recovery. I don't know how I discovered you, but when I did, I became really interested in you and the way you speak about things. And also, I think we have a lot of similarities in the way we approach talking about subject matter that is difficult. And yeah, I'm just really looking forward to talking to you. I really am. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And you know what? For the past couple of weeks, I've just been moving through some of the conversations we've had with people. And one of the main reasons I was just so excited to finally sit with you is because I think you are open to having refreshing, unfiltered conversations, and you're interested in finding out just where it's going to go instead of curating something that is so neat and so refined. And I'm someone that always just craves rawness, and I see that in the work you do. So I'm thrilled that you even thought to have me here. So thank you. Well, like I said, you recognize people who have the same objective, and more and more, there are conversations that we really must have that are beneficial for us to have that are only going to move us forward as a culture. And while we're stuck in these siloed spaces where people who believe this are over here and people who believe that are over there, we're just staying disconnected. And if I know anything, that it is through connection and sharing experiences that we move forward. I know that. I've been doing this for, for a long time personally and professionally, I have actively sought people who are brave enough to live authentically and to honor their truth. And you are one of those people. So to that point, how do you describe yourself? I describe myself as a mentor, as a speaker, and as a writer. And there are many other things that I do that fall into all of those categories. And within those areas, I focus on self-sabotage and self-censorship. Wow. Okay. So yes, when I look at your bio, it says helping you move Mm. through self-censorship. What is that? Because there's a certain aspect Mm. of self-censorship that is simply needed to live in the world. And what that line is, is of course different for everybody, but there are certain societal norms that have shifted into wonderful, much needed places. And then there are the norms that are restrictive and are prohibitive and moving us further away from our true selves. So when you describe self-censorship, what does that mean for you? Yes. And I'm really glad that you asked that because something I like to do in my work is to give very clear definitions of what it is I'm talking about and to talk about differentiations as well. So self-censorship, to put it very, very simply, it's when you withhold your own ideas, your opinions, how you truly feel about something or someone or a situation, but you do that because of fear, okay? So you're afraid that you're going to be punished 
you're afraid that you're going to be judged or you're going to be ostracized or if we want to use the language that we use today you're going to be cancelled for expressing that thing so the main thing to remember about self-censorship is that it is driven by fear whereas what you were referring to earlier about the social norms and the social contracts that we have with each other which is so so necessary that is called having a social filter and that is a good thing because you're not supposed to say every single thing that comes into your head because it's not always useful. It's not always a good idea. It's not always appropriate. And it's not always with the right audience or in the right place. There's context and there's nuance, right? So a social filter is something that we want to be able to refine and something that we want to understand is useful for us to relate to one another. Whereas self-censorship is a completely different thing. It's not driven by critical thinking. It's not driven by you being grounded. It's not driven by you saying, actually, this is not appropriate for this situation. So let me just keep this to myself or express it to a different audience or to someone else. It's driven by fear. So those are the two differences. There's self-censorship and then there's having a useful social filter. So you're talking about intention. Mm -hmm. And I always say that intention is everything. Why am I saying something? What is my objective with saying something? Is it just to express myself? Is it to impose my opinion on someone else? Is it try to get someone to think differently about something? You know, intention is the differentiator for me. Yes. And it takes a certain amount of self-reflection to be able to check in with yourself and ask the question, let me read the room and why am I saying this? What right. is my objective for saying this? Yes, I love that so much. And you know what, the other side of that as well is, what is my intention of not saying this? Which is where I think self-censorship comes from, right? Why am I withholding this? To even ask yourself those questions, to be curious about your own intention. But when you uncover that you're withholding what you really think in a situation because you're afraid of what might happen to you, because you're afraid of being punished, by people you know, or often as we experience it online by strangers, right? Yeah, that's a great point. And we know that to be ostracized from your community is one of the most punishing, demoralizing, isolating, demeaning experiences that any individual can have, whether that mm. is on a macro level or a micro level. We're tribal yes. beings. And I think there is an innate fear of being isolated from the tribe, which is why the fear of saying the wrong thing is mm. so monumental. So you mentioned cancel culture. How do you define cancel culture? Oh gosh, well, it's become such a big term now because what I've realized, Amanda, is that everyone has a different way of defining it. You will have some people that believe that it's all tied in with politics. You will have some people that think it simply doesn't exist. You will have some people that think it's just an exaggeration. But for me, I think what we're seeing and what we call cancer culture is collective sabotage. It's almost like a group effort to get in the way of our own best interest, right? Well, people cancer culture cannot exist without mm. a multitude of people. Yes. Right? Exactly. I can't just cancel exactly. you, Africa, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. it depends. If I'm someone that has a massive following, then I can yeah. engage all my people. But I, as an individual, would not have a lot of impact with cancelling right. you, Africa, just if I was one-to-one. Yeah. -one. Right. It's a group effort. And I think it's formed by things like cyberbullying, which is the main way that cancer culture is kind of finding its legs and spreading across the world. 
And it also has an element of doxing. So doxing is when someone's private information is put online, where they work, where they live, all of their information is exposed. And I think it's also formed by antisocial behavior, which is a lot of what we're seeing as well. When you get really specific about what it actually looks like in action, what it involves, you really see how disturbing it is. And it often reminds me of the witch hunt trials, because it almost feels like everyone is on trial at any moment. You will get punished in front of the court of social media. As time goes on, it becomes more difficult to just give a very clear-cut definition of what it is, because it's something that shifts and changes all the time. I do think coming together as a collective, as a group, and calling out injustice and saying, hey, there's an issue here, we need to do something about it. Or Crucial. Started some, off right? with great intentions. Right. And but, with every movement, there are people who yeah. use that moment for their own personal gains that are not necessarily Absolutely. aligned with the origin. Uh, thank you for articulating that so directly and so concisely, because that's exactly what my biggest issue was. Just saying, hey, we seem to have gone in a completely different direction, a direction that actually perpetuates what we're trying to say we're putting a stop to. And have you been on the receiving end of people trying to cancel you? No, I haven't. So I think one of the reasons I haven't received so much pushback or backlash or anyone has tried to cancel me or anything like that, to be very honest and direct, I think because I am a Black woman, I get to say certain things that many people might not be able to. Because That was actually really a question for me, was about how does really, being a Black woman play into people's right. responses to your outspokenness against yes. woke, woke mm -hmm. mobs? Yes. That was the question I, I had for you. And it's, it's a very good and important question. And you know what? It's one that I'm sure some people wouldn't even ask because if I'm just going to be very direct, we have an be obsession. Be direct, with Africa. I yeah, don't want you to course. not be direct. Of you are course. you. I love that about you. That would go against everything. Oh my I'm God. Sorry. I don't expect you to be anything but direct. And so am I. So we're in, good, we're, yes. Good. We're together on this one. Yes, okay? we are. Because of our obsession with identity, where we have these bizarre identity hierarchies we think because you have a certain skin color maybe you have a certain disability or you have a certain disadvantage or you're just called a marginalized person because of whatever has happened in your life we have this thing and i bought into this for a short time that just because i'm a black woman what i'm saying cannot be questioned just because i'm a black woman that means i'm right by default right just because i'm a black woman you amanda as a white woman can't say actually africa i don't agree with that Right. So I think because a lot of people are afraid and we're kind of treading on eggshells around each other and enabling each other at the same time, because we're looking at identity first instead of the content of what someone is actually saying. But that was the climate of the culture and is still yes. somewhat today where identity is still the predominant leading factor mm. around who can say what. And the truth is, is that yes. for generations, marginalized people have mm -hmm. not had the platform, have not had the space. And so Agreed. to speak to the fact that it was a necessary adjustment that mm -hmm. needed to happen. And yet there are people who have used that necessary shift for their own, you know, yes, malintentioned objectives. That's understanding yeah. human nature as well, that that is yeah. inevitable, that will happen at some point. And it has happened. Yeah. And I think it happened in a way where people weren't really able to 
point out what feels wrong. I think for a lot of people, even the thousands of people I've spoken to, everyone could feel like, okay, we're starting to think about people's identities. It is a very good thing that we're taking an intersectional approach to conversations. But then at some point, things just started to feel like they were not quite right. People started to notice, okay, why are we using public shaming, for example, as a tool for change, instead of trying to bring people together and have conversations that will actually move us forward? Can I ask you, whether mm. you think there was certain incidences, was there any political events, social events that started creating a larger divide? A divide, yes. Oh, absolutely. It makes me happy that a lot of people are starting to actually look back at 2020 as a very significant year, not just because of the pandemic, but because of the George Floyd incident that happened in the US. For me, why I found that really, really important because it brought conversations to the surface that never would have happened had we not been in a collective lockdown all over the world. But there were discussions about race that were so, so important. And I will always hold them as very important because they made us, especially in the Western world, have to start asking ourselves hard questions have to start interrogating our own behaviors and saying, hey, I didn't even realize this might have been harm to a certain group. I didn't realize my own biases. But then over time, it started to slip in the direction of if you are a white person, you are bad by default. You are evil by default. You're a wrongdoer by default. And there was no context or nuance. You suddenly have to start thinking, okay, by default, I am a racist person. I'm going to have to weed out this racism, look at where I have been racist to my friends and to my family. And again, when you look at these things, there's nothing wrong with being introspective. There's nothing wrong with asking yourself questions and saying, have I been behaving in an unconsciously unuseful way without even realizing? I think that's fine. But I think we started to see a bigger racial divide of there being zero grace you almost just had to accept that if you are white, you are a racist person and you have to start working to be anti-racist for the rest of your life. So I think there were a lot of conversations around how to be anti-racist, how to be a good ally. And I think diversity and inclusivity in anything we do is very important. And these are things that I've been championing for a very long time, which is why I'm very serious about conversations like this. Because I've found that over time, I just started to think, okay, why do these people never put forward solutions? Why does it always seem like they're repeating the same message over and over again, using shame as a tool, using guilt as a tool, but they never put forward any solutions and they never encourage people to come together to figure out solutions? Honestly, that's why I built hmm. Girl Gaze, because right. I wanted people to stop talking about the problem and, and for me to say, here's the solution. We've aggregated over 20,000 people in 56 countries that you can hire. Mm. You keep telling me you can't find women of color to tell women of color stories. Here right. you go. You can't find a trans woman to photograph another trans woman. Here you go. I raised money as a female founder, first time mm. raising money. It was brutal. And the amount of companies that were flying the flag of actually saying publicly that they cared about diversity. And when I, we went to each one of those companies or the majority of them and said, you work in the audiovisual or media space, please sign up for our platform and hire this community. Very few of them did. Very right. few of them actually walked the talk. 
You just want to get the media coverage, but you don't want to actually change the status quo by taking a a tangible action. And that's when I realized, oh no, this is performative. A lot of this is performative. It really is. So what do you do when you have seen performative, I don't want to call it wokeism. Like what do you Mm -hmm. call it? How do you define wokeness? Oh my goodness. I'll answer that question, but I should preface this. It's also really important. The more, whenever you say words like cancel culture or wokeism, what I've realized is that it actually fuels the divide, which is why I intentionally like to stay away from those terms because immediately it puts people into a position either resonating with you. Identifying with one or the other. Yes, with one or the other, it perpetuates that binary of you're either woke, anti-woke, which I really don't like. But I will use that term when I'm being specific in the way that I use it. And because I know that a lot of people will understand what I'm trying to get at. So I've found that terms like that end up creating another echo chamber when it's exactly what I'm trying to go against, which is why I prefer to describe the behavior that I'm actually talking about instead of just leaving everything as woke. Thank Mm, you for mm -hmm. raising that. And that is a lead that I will take because I completely agree with you. It's really, again, going back to intention, right? Right. And what's the objective here? I know for me, the objective is to help invite conversation and have discussions that allow people who are maybe more binary with their thinking one yes. way or the, other, or the other to be open to a more inclusive middle mm. ground. Yes. I'm trying to bring people together so that we can move forward. And I believe you are. So I really respect your intention mm. with describing behavior, not binary terms. Yes, absolutely. I think people end up going to so many different extremes, right? So for example, I think something that could have easily happened with me when I wrote my open letter, why I'm leaving the cult of wokeness, which I still absolutely love that title. When I think of wokeism, if I am to use that term, if I am to find a way to describe it, I do think it's an ideology. I think it's people that take different elements of movements that were really, really important, right? Whether it's to do with race or sexuality or gender or different conversations around liberation and having a more progressive way of thinking. It's people that have taken those very useful elements to the absolute extreme, to the absolute, absolute extreme, where they refuse to entertain that other people feel differently. A lot of the time it is about weaponizing victimhood, right? Especially because of those identity hierarchies that I was speaking earlier, that if you hold a certain identity, then you get to speak or you get to be coddled. You get people to agree with everything you say. So I think victimhood is a huge part of what people on a larger scale would kind of think as a wokest ideology. The people who tend to see themselves as anti-woke, also participate in that in a different way. They also take things to the absolute extreme. They also engage in binary thought where just because someone is having a conversation about something like white supremacy or something about gender, they'll immediately label it as woke. People that do fall into the category of woke. And I think intuitively, a lot of us know what it looks like. And then the people that fall into the category of anti-woke, They all behave in very similar ways, but just differently. They both use public shame tool. They both use elements of victimhood. 
they both use doxing when it benefits them. You will have some people that are anti-cancel culture that will perpetuate cancel culture when it benefits them. That's also coming back to what you were talking about earlier. I think that's why I haven't received any pushback, to be very honest, around my work, even though my open letter has been read by over 7 million people and I've spoken to thousands of people about these things. I think because I focus on the psychology instead of looking at the individual and making myself kind of self-righteous as if I'm somewhat superior to this behavior, I think that's why it lands with people regardless of wherever they fall on the political spectrum, because I'm just specific in the language that I use. Even if I'm being very direct and firm and I don't mince my words and I never will, it allows for people to not easily place me anywhere. Yes, so I, I know I, exactly I what you're talking about. And ultimately, it's the ability to objectively comment on and examine behavior, no matter where it falls. I wonder if the fact that you're in recovery, as Mm. am I, that we really learn to remove the judgment from ourselves about choices that we made when we didn't actually know any better or when we were using drugs and alcohol and the maladaptive character traits that kept us alive at that point. And we did the best we could. And a huge part of recovery is about self-forgiveness and removing judgment. And I feel that that has given me a really solid foundation to be able to speak to people and hear people who maybe I don't agree with them, but I don't actually have a judgment on them being less of a person or less valid or have less rights than me just because they think differently. And I'm wondering if your own recovery foundation has allowed you to objectively look at behavior without this extreme layer of judgment. Absolutely. And I always, always credit my sobriety for just the perspective that I have on life in general, because I have seen my shadow in just uh, in the most stunning ways. And I don't mean stunning in a good way, but in the messiest, most awkward, most debilitating ways. And I know that I've been able to overcome that. I know that I am so capable of being manipulative. I know that I'm capable of lying. I know that I'm capable of cheating. I know that I'm capable of lying to myself in, in such profound ways but I'm also capable of being very loving. I'm also capable of being open and warm and understanding and honest and truthful and all of these things. They all exist within me, but I choose to be a certain way. I choose to interrogate myself. I choose to hold myself to different standards. I accept that all of that exists within me. My default is to accept that that exists in other people as well. It's actually when you are in recovery or sobriety, or you've just been through adversity and being able to take yourself out of it you really just view the world differently that's a super interesting concept because i do believe that in order to grow we must struggle and we must fail and we must fuck up yes and the only way that we can learn is by going wow that was a terrible choice the impact of making that choice saying that thing doing that thing was so negative that I do not want to do that again. And that's part of learning. And unfortunately, people are, you know, I look at my kids who are 15 and I'm like, man, you can't learn in public anymore because everything's on Mm. social. Someone could photograph something, video something, document something. So how is someone who's on their first job? They're not 
fully formed with, right. you know, ideals and concepts and training and, and life mm. experience, they're going to fuck up. That yeah. is part of learning. And yet it is a black mark against their name, potentially mm -hmm. forever. And it worries me that there is no space and there's no grace for making mistakes. Yeah. Even though we all know that one of the only things that is guaranteed in this life is that you will fuck up at some point. And Why that you'll die. That's the other up. one. And that you'll yes. die. <laughs> right? Let's just talk about the other things that no one wants to talk about. You will fuck up and you will die. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's a great book title, Amanda. You will fuck up and you will die. Okay, good. Um, I like that. Because I really like that idea, though, of um, just the grace to fuck up. It's also something that I like to speak about in my work. When I'm speaking about this division and the polarization and how we can just take a moment to honor our imperfections, not in a superficial, feels-good kind of way, but to accept that it is going to be uncomfortable, to accept that Yes, it might be difficult to see someone else fucking up, especially publicly, and to stop yourself from engaging in the almost joy that some people feel from seeing someone suffer or from seeing someone lose something and to just humanize them for a moment. So I think there's also a big element there about humanizing ourselves so that we're able to humanize other people because I think we're holding ourselves and other people to such impossible standards it's not real. This is also just contributing to relational breakdown, which I think is a huge part of this as well. I mean, I um, completely so agree. I like think about it. I completely mm. agree. Do you think the climate is changing at all to being less binary? Are we I, moving towards a more balanced middle ground? I do. I do. But I think it will take time. And I think something that offers me relief to realize that we're seeing this amount of division and polarization now, but I think we're also seeing it even more because of social media. It has always existed. Since the beginning of time, you have had division and polarization. It's not actually as new as we might think. We just call it a different thing and we're seeing it in a different way. The labels have changed and then, and it's magnified exactly. because of social. It used to be, it used to be contained to specific social circles or yes, it used to yes. be confined to specific societies. I always think about, you know, in medieval times, people would put someone in the stocks. They'd put them in the marketplace and everyone in the community that agreed that they had done something terrible would come and throw rotten yes. food at them. Yes, exactly. I love that you say that. I also, to remind myself and to not overwhelm myself into believing that this is sudden, what has happened overnight, is to just look back in history and to realize that, yes, it was probably more localized, but this has always been something that is happening, right? We're just seeing it and experiencing it in a very different and very intense way. And right? I just want to point out that different opinions and division is not a bad thing. It is the lack of forgiveness and acceptance yes. and inclusion of anybody who doesn't fit into either one of those yes. binary positions. That is the problem, not that people have right. different opinions. Actually, piggybacking off what you just said, I think it is important to realize that this conversation is not about the harm of having different opinions. It's actually quite the opposite. We need to have a variety of opinions. Something that I always say is that there is no point having people who are of, you know, diverse races, diverse sexuality, diverse gender, diverse environmental experiences, diverse economic standings, whatever without having diversity of thought. 
there's no point having a room full of people of color if they have been chosen because they think in the exact same way, agree with the exact same thing. We need to be able to hear different perspectives. That's something that I also really like to encourage. And I get so many messages from people of all ages, people from all across the globe, people as young as 13 years old that thank me for my work and my own answer and say that they now feel like they're actually able to have conversations with their friends and they don't have to agree with everything. We will prioritize critical thinking instead of ideologies. We need to work as a collective. People are starting to ask more questions. So I'm always, always hopeful. Things are shifting. They are. You've been vocal about questioning if we really do want people to change for the better or if the desire is simply Mm. to shame and punish. The question is, who decides who gets to come back from making a mistake? Because currently there is no tangible discussion about the course of events that needs to happen for people to return to society having made Mm. monumental catastrophic decisions. Now, Mm. my point of view is that there are some people who have just made choices that are so vile that like, sorry, you're gone. Like whatever island it is that you know, those people get sent to, you're gone. And then there's a Mm. whole bunch of other people who are actually more in the gray area and it's more nuanced. And we need to have a discussion about, hang on a minute, let's talk about what that person actually said. And let's look at it in context. And there's no due process other Mm. than people who make the loudest noise about whatever that subject matter is. So I want to ask you, in your opinion, what needs to happen to create a space for conversations about reintegration for people Mm. who have learned? Because I have friends who have said and or done things that were wholly unacceptable. There was no other way to describe it. Some of them veering more on the side of like, "Mm, I don't know, this is really unacceptable Mm. to like, okay, I see that you were just really uneducated and that now you know better. Quite a few of those people that I know have truly had what we would define as a spiritual awakening. I have seen people truly change their mindset and Mm. their behavior at a defined moment in their life and they were never the same person again. And so I know it's possible. Right. And I have faith that human beings are able to learn from their mistakes and that they are able to increase their consciousness and take ownership take accountability Mm. and say, I did this thing, I said this thing, and I take ownership, and I will be making amends for this for the rest of my life, and here's how I'm going to do it. And so I live in hope that it is possible that we can get to a point in our culture where we can openly have a discussion about what would it take for people to be open to having a discussion about what does re-entry look like? Yes. I actually got chills as you were talking because it's something I think about all the time. And I guess put simply, it's about redemption, right? There seems to be no conversations around redemption and how someone can put themselves forward and say that they have changed. The reason why I think it's quite complex in thinking about how this will happen in our current culture is because I think we're made to believe that it has to be a public performance, that you owe the public and strangers your journey of redemption, when actually it's a deeply personal thing. And many people will disagree with what those actual steps look like. 
maybe we need to start prioritizing patience. It takes time for someone to change something, right? I think we don't speak about compassion enough. I don't speak about redemption enough. I think sometimes when unity is spoken about, it's in an almost fluffy way that disregards a lot of the hard conversations that need to happen. Because of my conversation with you, I will be thinking about redemption quite a bit, and I'll be making sure that I highlight it even more in my work, because I think it creates a steady ground for some of the bigger conversations. So I, yeah. I'm really pleased you brought that up because what you call redemption, I also call restorative justice. And oh, I'm, yes. I'm very, yes. very interested in that as well, because I'm a solution-based person. It could be because of how I'm raised in sobriety with the tools of our shared recovery program of choice that I'm very about solutions. What's the solution here? Let me not just talk about the problem. Let me help facilitate a conversation about structure for tangible, positive change. That is my only objective in the conversations that I have. I'm a spiritual person. I don't consider myself a religious person, but I love the St. Francis prayer, which says it is better to understand than to be understood. I love that. And that is at the kind of basis of the work that I try to do. I try to understand others and to help build bridges so that we can move forward collectively with causing less pain to each other as human beings. And that's kind of my goal. Yes. Oh, it perfectly ties in with my own mantra, which is that understanding does not mean acceptance. And it's something that is offered me just, oh, I love that. Yeah. So I can, I can hear different perspectives. I can understand that someone has done something that I strongly oppose, but I can try and understand. I can try and still see them as human. And I think that piece helps me and a lot of people that I know in my audience so much because it makes them realize, okay, I can actually understand without needing to accept it by default, because I think we confuse the two. That is beautiful differentiation. And again, it comes down to removing judgment. I can see you. I can hear what your experience is, but I do do not need to judge you for it. I can accept we have different opinions on this and I can still treat you with the respect that you as another human being on the planet deserve. Right. If you love the conversation, then I wanted to tell you about another podcast I host called VS Voices. The VS Voices podcast provides a platform for women to speak their diverse truths, share personal stories, and advance discussions of issues that are important to them. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I work with a lot of people who are in the public eye. So I've had clients who, when something happens, immediately they feel that they have to put out a public apology. Let's say something comes out a few hours ago or even yesterday, their management or their PR company or their audience or millions of other people are demanding that they say something right now. But I always encourage them to not do that because it doesn't work. First of all, you're perpetuating and feeding into this culture that demands that you change right there on the spot. You have no time to sit with it and to be introspective because by definition, responsibility is the ability to respond And to respond, you need time and space. And maybe the bigger conversation that leads to the redemption conversation is giving ourselves the grace to have space. And of course, people get to do whatever they want to do. People have careers to save. They have an image, reputation, blah, blah, blah. But I think 
we need to just remember that people need space. Someone can't just immediately turn their life around and just change. It takes time. It really does take time. So I think that redemption piece, it's a deeply personal process while someone is taking their own time behind the scenes to really think about what it is they have done. What are they actually apologizing for? Do they even have something to apologize for? I mean, look, this is going back to a very tricky thing, which is that there are times when people have said things and they have been really criticized for it publicly. Mm -hmm. And I have looked at and listened to what they have said. And I felt like you don't owe anybody an apology right. for this. This was your truth. Yeah. So something that I wonder, I think we all need to practice having more social courage, identifying what it is that we're willing to risk, even on a small level, right? So we can be in our fullest expression, because I don't think all of us are able to just say, you know what, this is how I feel. And that is it. Maybe I'm able to speak more so in this way because I don't owe anyone anything. I don't work for anyone else. I make my own decisions. I have my own company. But would I approach things a little bit differently if I had a full-time job? Maybe I would still allow myself to speak freely. And I truly believe I would because that's just who I am as a person. But I would just go about it differently. The way I risk would look a little bit different, right? So I think something that might help who's listening to this and thinking, okay, so I get the idea about self-censorship. I've been censoring myself. Yes, I understand that a social filter is important, but there are some conversations that I would like to be able to have with my friends and my family and just sort of, yeah, allow myself to express what is really true to me. It can feel daunting because it feels so big to even step forward and change your behavior and approach life in a different way. But I think when you identify what it is you're willing to risk, that can help you a bit. And it doesn't always have to be a big thing. You know, it doesn't have to be your job. Start it small. Have to <laughs> My start recommendation small. is to start small. Yeah. Meet and yourself where you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to say is that I understand that when I invite certain conversations and when I create space to consciously go into discussions that I know are historically polarizing, that I have to do that at a time where my resilience is up, mm. where I am prepared emotionally for yes. the social pushback, for the upset that inevitably mm. some people will feel. But we need to have communal space where we can hear each other and, and collaborate. And I'm really yes. about collaboration. I want mm. to center mm. the voices and the people who have learned from the poor choices. Yes. and who have changed their lives because we need to also start knowing that it is possible for anyone who's listening who's saying I want to be able to have conversations within my family or at work or with my friends or whatever it is and what I want to say is picking the time that you can handle it is also really important because that will dictate the success and the outcome I love that. I love that so much because everything we're talking about now also has to be addressed, which you just did on a nervous system level, because it's not just about what you're saying, right? It's about everything that is happening internally. Where are you mentally? Where are you emotionally? Where are you spiritually, right? Because if you don't have anything to give within you and you know that you're not quite steady and standing up straight in your internal view right now, then trying to have a very challenging conversation or putting something out when you know 
that there's going to be a lot of things incoming and you don't have enough to hold all of that. That just means your discernment needs to be sharper. It might not be the right time. Maybe in a few months, you'll be like, okay, now it's time for that conversation. Now I can actually handle having that conversation out there. So I, I love that. I love that so much. And for people to know that we don't owe anybody our truth until and if we are ready to share it. Yes, that's huge. That's a huge piece of it. And I, you know what, I think that's going to offer a lot of people so much relief. And at the same time, also make sure that you're not leaning into that to a point where you start to use the idea of not owing anyone your truth as a reason to withhold that truth. So I think it then becomes that discernment piece, right? But I think that is huge because a lot of us do feel like we owe people to tell them what we feel. We owe people to be daring out loud. We owe people to be publicly this. When actually, no, you don't. You don't. And that comes back to, again, our intention. Is your intention to take care of yourself because now is not the time? Or is your intention to avoid backlash because you don't want to feel shamed? Those are two different intentions. I love that so much and resonate with it because it makes me think of something I always remind myself and my clients as well, is that not every hill is worth dying on. I think that's what I'm hearing from what you're saying. Not everything is your hill. And that process of really embodying that idea comes from, as you're saying, just knowing that, no, my well-being is much more important than everything that's happening right now. Right. And I think once you allow yourself to understand that you free yourself in so many ways, because there are so many things that I can speak about. There's so many things that people ask me to talk about. There's so many things that I do have an opinion on. You know what? It's not my hill. It is not my hill. And I'm not willing to hold the backlash or the criticism or the think pieces or the whatever the fuck else would come from it because it's simply not a priority. You must do it from a place of what is based in integrity for you and what is in your best interest. Right. Right. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it reminds me of self-trust. I think you have to be practicing self-trust to be able to do that. To be able to say, you know what, I, I stand by this. I choose not to speak or I choose to speak or even or even I don't know or I don't know enough to say something about. Oh, I love I don't know. Like it is not knowing and not taking an action either way or another is an action in itself. That yes. is a choice. I actually feel so inspired. I feel so deeply inspired. Just before we started talking, I was doing some writing. I'm doing quite a lot of writing at the moment. I'm kind of in a state of observation and silence and just writing. And I really do feel like this conversation has ignited so many different things. And I'm just so grateful that I could sit with you and talk to someone that also likes solutions, right? And someone who's willing to go to the places that most people just want, especially publicly. So I'm just so grateful that you had me. You're so welcome. Thank you, Africa. Oh, we'll speak soon. We will. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe. And don't forget that if you love the conversation, then check out VS Voices, which highlights trailblazing women from around the world to celebrate the female experience. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter and follow me on social media at Amanda Decadney.